In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the very final part of the parable that we heard for the gospel lesson. And this is the part of the parable that I'm going to focus on for today. This last part of the parable from Matthew 22 seems absurd. It seems like an overreaction. It seems very pompous and arrogant that the king would expect people to wear certain clothes and that he gets so angry when they don't. And not only that, but he binds them hand, the, the man hand and foot and casts him into the outer darkness. Now, this is a parable, which means that all of this means something. Every, every, it's symbolic. It's a, a, an analogy for, uh, for what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so it becomes even more disconcerting when you realize that being cast out into the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth means that he sends him to hell. All for wearing the wrong clothes. Now, admittedly, this parable would be very obscure and very difficult to understand. In fact, even offensive. If you didn't have this one key piece of information, and that's this. That in the Israelite culture, the host of the wedding would provide the wedding garments. He would give them out for free to everyone he invited. He would give you the robe or the gown or the clothing, whatever it was he wanted you to wear. He would give that to you so that you would wear it there at the wedding. Now, with that in mind, then you can see in the parable, it's not the king who is pompous and arrogant and rude. But it is the man who is without the clothing who is pompous, arrogant and rude. If the clothing was freely given, then why didn't he wear it? Nowadays, look, we don't do this. Nowadays, it's just simply too expensive to buy clothing for everybody at the wedding. We just, so we don't do it. Simply, we can't afford it. But a modern day equivalent that I could think of would be the clothing of the wedding party. And traditionally in American weddings, the bride picks all of the dresses for her bridesmaids. The groom picks all of the the tuxedos or the suits or whatever it is for the men. And there's thought and there's effort and there's coordination and there's planning and there's money involved in all of it. Sometimes the bride and groom even pay for that clothing so that you would wear that when you show up to the wedding. Okay, now imagine going through all this work and the wedding is finally here and the wedding party arrives and they gather together in the narthex and they're all excited about this great day. And then uh, one of the bridesmaids uh, walks in late wearing jeans and a t-shirt and, I don't know, drinking coffee and having a donut or something like that. And she just stumbles in. Uh, Or imagine one of the groomsmen walks in and he's in shorts and a t-shirt or something. I guarantee you, what? They will not walk down the aisle. (laughs) Even if it's your best friend, they will not be walking down the aisle that day. And in fact, you'd probably kick them out of the wedding And more than that, there's no excuse that they'd possibly give you that you're going to accept at this moment. 
because you already went through all the work. Nothing they'd say is gonna help. If they said, look, well, I didn't really like the dress, it doesn't uh, compliment me, or the suit is uncomfortable, or I like this color better. Uh, no, no matter what excuse, you're gonna kick them out regardless and probably never speak to them again. And I've seen people do this over, friends do this over lesser things at a wedding. Uh, now, even more, if you kick the person out, no one's gonna be mad at you, right? The whole congregation, the, even the pastor himself, is probably going to take your side and you're not going to look like the crazy person, the person who showed up not wearing what you purchased and bought them and gave to them and handed to them. They're going to look like the crazy person. And so you see, it's not so much the clothing that is the problem, but it's the attitude that would have to go accompany that in order to do, to pull off a stunt like that. You would have to be extremely self-centered and egotistical to do something like that. Now, someone who would do this, who would show up to a wedding like that, is not there for you, but for themselves. Now, that's the best analogy I could come up with, a modern day analogy. <clears throat> now, just a footnote here. Uh, you should dress your best for church. A lot of Christians have been duped into treating church into some like informal or casual affair. Uh, and so they dress like it too. And they will wear to church what they wear to a ball game or something or to the movies. But you should take church a little more seriously than that. Uh, you dress up for weddings, you dress up for dates and even your work. Um, because they mean something and they're important. And so the question is, why not dress up for church where God himself is present with his body and his blood to forgive your sins and all the host of heaven and the angels with him, uh, where he gives you the forgiveness of sins? Uh, okay, <clears throat> back to the sermon. That was a footnote. Uh, the point of this parable, though, is not about what you wear outwardly but what you wear inwardly. It's not so much about the clothes that cover your body, but what covers your soul. So the question is, what is the clothing? If this is the parable, the clothing should stand for something. So the clothing is not good works. It is not a good heart. It is not good, a good track record or a good reputation. The good clothing, the right clothing, is nothing other than the righteousness of God. Isaiah uh, chapter 61 says this, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the, role, with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. When did this happen? When were you clothed like this? In Galatians chapter 3, 27, it says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Uh, in fact, this is typically why we dress infants. And anybody who's been baptized, they will dress in white. We dress infants in this white gown uh, to, uh, as, a, as a confession of faith to say, uh, they're clothed in white, but now their soul, uh, which their sins, which are, 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 are dark and like scarlet, they will be whiter than snow. 
Uh, even more, you're not only clothed once, but you do this daily in repentance and faith, which is why St. Paul says in Romans 13, he says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the clothing given is the Lord himself, his righteousness, his salvation. This is the garment that the king freely gives. God freely clothes you. You, you can't earn this. You can't get it for yourself, but it's freely given. Now, what he does with this is he hides your sinfulness. He, he hides your guilt. He hides your wickedness, your filthy heart and soul, your shameful past. He covers it in the blood of Jesus, the perfect obedience of Christ. <clears throat> now, the parable is telling us this. Your way into the wedding banquet that is into the kingdom of heaven is the righteousness of Christ. That's it. Your way into this church, into the kingdom of God and eternal life is not anything you've done, but it is the garment of Christ and him crucified for you. And yet, this parable tells us that some will reject that clothing. They will reject that righteousness which is freely given. Instead, they would prefer to wear what they want, clothe themselves in something else, and still expect to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. I need, you, I need you to really, really understand this and to take it to heart, to drive it into your heart and etch it into, engrave it into your soul. That the only requirement for membership in this church, in the church, in the kingdom of God, is not how much you give an offering, it is not how much you volunteer. It is not how valuable your work in the church is. The only requirement for membership in this church is repentance and faith. That is it. The requirement is saying that you are a poor, miserable sinner who deserves death and condemnation. And it is also saying that Jesus, the Lord himself, saves me from the things I deserve, death and hell, and he purchased me with his precious and holy blood. That is it. So it is good. It is good that you are a volunteer. It is good that you are generous. It is good that you give time and energy and money and all these sort of things. And, and, and it's good that you've been here from the beginning. It's good that you've been here since day one. But don't ever, ever get confused or mistaken or have the misconception that one of these things will keep you here or is the reason you're here. Your membership here begins and remains as long as you repent and believe. That is it. And so that means that your membership does what? It ends when you stop repenting and stop believing. Regardless of how much you give or how good you, you, or how much you volunteer or what you do. It begins with repentance and faith and your membership ends with, with impenitence and unbelief. When you become impenitent, you are, that is the act of taking off Christ, taking off the righteousness of Jesus and walking away from your baptism, which you've been clothed in. You, you may have heard it at one point, maybe, uh, sorry, you may have had it at one point. You may have been wearing it when you first came in even. But it doesn't matter if you once wore it. It matters if you wear it now, present tense. 
I, I want to move on to what happens next in the parable. <clears throat> the king walks in and he sees the man in the wrong clothes and he says, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And now here's the part I want you to focus on. The text says, what is the man's response? It says, he was speechless. Not the king, but the man was speechless when he was caught without the wedding garment. What is that referring to? What, what, when the king comes to see the wedding guest, uh, that is the second advent of our dear Lord, the last day, the judgment day. And notice the man's reaction. He is speechless. We, I don't know what that's like now. In fact, none of us do. We, we don't know. I don't think we've ever seen somebody speechless when confronted like this. In fact, when you confront people with their sin and unbelief, what, what happens? They're not speechless. In fact, they have a lot to say. They have a speech prepared. Uh, they're far from it. They usually have a lot to say, many excuses. They'll say, the church is judgmental. Uh, the church is boring. Uh, the Bible is offensive. It is oppressive. I don't believe in organized religion. I'm, too, I'm just way too busy. I work. Love is love. Nobody's perfect. Everybody's doing it. It's natural. Uh, or, or one time, one person get, looked at me or talked to me a certain way in the congregation, and that is why I will never go back. <laughs> so, something like this. Uh, so so it's, it's an excuse. It's a litany of excuses. There are tons of reasons and explanations. But notice, this is talking about the last day, and it says he was speechless. And that is a... Uh, a prediction, a prophecy, how the unbelieving and the impenitent will be on the last day. We'll probably be speechless too in a good way, but they will be speechless in a bad way, in terror. Romans 1.20, you know this text. It says, For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they... The unbelieving are without excuse. John 15, 22, Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now, because I've spoken to them, they have no excuse for their sin. Again, uh, now we have this deeply humbling text in Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 25. <clears throat> Listen to this. It's, it's a paragraph here, but... It says, do not neglect to meet, do not neglect to meet together. Uh, that is to come to church, to synagogue, to come together in the church. So don't neglect doing that as is the habit of some. But encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Because if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace that is straight from the Bible. Those are the words of Holy Scripture, the, the words that the Holy Spirit caused to be written. On the last day, the impenitent and unbelieving will have no excuse, no reason, no explanation. They'll be completely and utterly speechless. <clears throat> 
nowadays, many people think that calling people to repentance is very unloving or unwelcoming or judgmental. Uh, that, that it's the most unwelcoming thing imaginable. Uh, it's not, but people think it is. And I, I would guess that this is why churches have done away with the practice that the Lord himself has instituted and given. The practice of church discipline and excommunication. They've done away with it. Uh, in, in fact, I gave a paper on this in Eagle, Nebraska uh, this July, uh, this year. And if you're interested in hearing it, let me know, and you can watch it or read it, uh, and you can find out more about that. But the, the point I'm getting at here today is that the common response to all of this, to church discipline and rebuking and correcting uh, the neighbor, even the member in love, uh, the common response typically to the one being corrected is this. They'll say, uh, or, or to the congregation, uh, that the congregation will respond this way. They'll say, look, well, if we tell people they need to repent that they need to amend their ways or they need to stop living in a certain way or stop some sort of habit in their life, then they're just going to get mad and what? Leave. They'll just get upset and leave. And very well, that may be the case. Often, in fact, oftentimes it is. When you call someone to repentance, you know this in your own life, they tend to get angry with you. They may leave the church. But that is no worse than when the king finds you impenitent on the last day. So don't let somebody's anger or potential anger dissuade you from doing the loving thing that Christ himself did to others and in fact even did to us when he rebuked us and corrected us and brought us to repentance. People in the world will be look. People in the world will be angry with you and curse you for warning them about sin. But I can guarantee you. I can promise you. Mark my words. That no one in hell will be angry with you or curse you for warning them about sin while they still had time to repent. Mark my words. On the other hand, they may be angry with you for not warning them about sin. And for you, and that means for you, if somebody calls you to repentance, don't, don't be a fool and reject correction. Don't be proud. Don't try and prove yourself. Just confess your sin. Admit it. Admit you were wrong. Amend your way and repent. For the love of God and your salvation, it is not worth it. Repent. And don't reject godly rebuke. Receive it with joy. This parable that Jesus teaches today is a warning. That last part is a warning for us. To not be like the man who was caught in the wrong clothing. So listen today. <clears throat> listen, uh, you five-year-olds, uh, you 10-year-olds, you 15 and 30 and 60 and 90-year-olds, uh, you may have a long list of reasons why you're here at this church, at this congregation, at this, uh, in this religion, in this denomination. You may really like the music or the singing or the people or the friendliness or the direction or the leadership or how close it is to where you live or the nostalgia or the tradition, whatever it may be. Your parents may be German Midwest Lutherans that came straight off the boat. Uh, you may have been born and raised in the LCMS and know it 
like the back of your hand. You may think you're part of the right group, the right team, and all of these th- things are fine and good. But <clears throat> none of those reasons are the right reason to be here. If you're here out of tradition or habit or out of obligation, then you're in the wrong place. And you're not wearing the right thing. Make note that the man in the wedding hall was in the wedding hall for a time. But th- which means there was a time that he got away with wearing the wrong thing. There was a time he was able to fool everybody. But ultimately, he didn't. And the king came back and he found him and he bound him hand and foot and he kicked him out. In the same way, there is a time that you can get away with being impenitent and unbelieving and even appear to be a Christian, even appear to be a member of the church outwardly and be attached to the church at one time. But that time will come to an end when the king returns and he finds you. Uh, You cannot deceive him. You can mock the congregation. You can mock the pastor, but God will not be mocked. And he sees your soul, what it is covered in. And so that means if you're here today, you ought to be here today because you know that you cannot help or save yourself. You ought to know that you are completely dependent upon and need the holy gospel of Jesus and him crucified, that you need his blood to clothe you from head to toe. Come to church and come to the kingdom of God, but don't come if you're not prepared to forsake yourself, your excuses, and your sins, and if you're unwilling to wear Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. This is a warning. This text is a warning. It is a wake-up call. Now, I have one last thing to say, and I'll close here in a minute, and that is this. Don't think that the wedding garments have anything to do with your good works uh, or how good or bad of a person you have been. In fact, we know that that is not what Jesus is saying here today. In fact, it can't be what he's saying. Verse 10 says, And those servants went out into the roads and they gathered all whom they found, both what? Bad and good. Evil, that's the word there, and good. The king, this is beautiful, the king is utterly uninterested in your reputation. He's utterly uninterested in your history, in how good and generous and kind and loving you've been in the past. In fact, even more, he's entirely uninterested in how bad and evil you've been, how many sins you have. He's uninterested in how many wicked thoughts you have in your mind, how coursing through your veins, uh, how many bad words and deeds you've said and done, how absolutely chaotic and reckless your life has been. He does not care about it one way or the other. The only thing he cares about is that you are covered with the holy and precious blood of Jesus. That is it. The only thing he cares about is that you've washed your robe in the blood of the lamb, that you've been clothed and crowned with the holy obedience of Christ. It does not matter how good or poor your reputation is, what you have, how bad your reputation you once had. Christ cares only that you have been baptized in him, have put him on and repent and believe. And here, saints of God, you are from all different places, with all different histories, some very great reputations in this world, 
Some of you have very great and are good, great and good people. And some of you have very shameful pasts and histories. Things that you are embarrassed of, things that you regret, things that you wish you could scrub out and erase from existence, th- things that you hate you've done, things that haunt you and plague you, things that we cannot scrub out of our hearts and minds. And regardless of who you are, Jesus has covered and hidden all of it in his blood. He has erased it from existence. And today, this wedding hall here today, the wedding hall of God's church is filled with those who have been clothed in the wedding garments of Christ, whose shame and guilt have been covered, whose sin has been buried under the unending forgiveness of Christ who loves you, who gave his body and blood for you, and who will do it here again. God has called you and he has chosen you and clothed you with his gospel. So dear saints, rejoice and praise God because he has clothed you with himself once again today. And he has invited you to this holy banquet of salvation, the feast of forgiveness with joy undying. Amen. Hear the words of this hymn. Lord, by love and mercy driven, you once left your throne in heaven on the cross for me to languish and to die in bitter anguish, to forego all joy and gladness and to shed your blood and sadness. By this blood redeemed and living, Lord, I praise you with thanksgiving. Jesus, bread of life, I pray you, let me gladly here obey you. By your love, I am invited. Be your love with love requited. By this supper, let me measure. Lord, how vast and deep love's treasure through the gift of grace you give me. As your guest in heaven, receive me. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.